Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. We are now into the third season of The Thriller Zone, and I could not be happier. Why? Well, we started this, as you know, just over a year ago. Very first guest was May Cobb. We have grown incrementally over the weeks and months to becoming one of the faster growing podcasts in the world. And I am so pleased with that. I'm so excited. You know why? This is my absolute first love. I love to write books. I love to read books. But boy, there is nothing like podcasting to me because it brings back the old feelings of being on the radio, which I wanted to do when I was probably 10 years old. And by the time I was 16, I had my very first radio show and went on to conquer quite a prolific career in radio. So coming back around 20 years later and starting a podcast, it is kind of a culmination of a dream come true. And on top of that, I get to interview some of the coolest, most talented people in the world. And today is no different. Why? Dean Koontz is on the show today. Yeah, I'm a little nervous. A guy who writes prolific amount of work. And this particular book by Dean Koontz, The Big Dark Sky, this is a thriller, it's a suspense, it's intriguing, it's mystical, it's magical, it's scientific. Well, I'm not going to go into too much depth, but I'm going to tell you The Big Dark Sky is amazing. And guess what? You get a chance to win a copy. You see here over the shoulder? Yeah, behind me, I got three copies that I would love to give to a loyal, faithful, happy listener. And at the end of the show, I'm going to tell you exactly how you can win a hard copy cover of The Big Dark Sky. You're going to have to stick around for the end of the show. And I can tell you, this is among the top uh, top favorite shows that I've had yet. Okay, there. There's my geek statement. Pretty amazing guy is as delightful as they come. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Thriller Zone, Dean Koontz. Hello. Good morning. How are you today? I'm so good, Dean. How are you, sir? Well, I have a little laryngitis, but I think I'll get through this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're both suffering something. 15 minutes ago, I got a phone call from my wife who was out taking an early morning run and she took a wicked fall. So I'm like, I'll be right there and got her home and she's all bandaged up. And I'm like, I got to get on a call. (laughs) Well, the wife comes first, certainly uh, ahead of me. That is, that is true. And I'll tell you what, that, that makes me think, uh, is it 47, 48, how many years you've been with Gerda? We've been married uh, 56 years in October. Yeah. In California, that's unheard. 
that's uh, that's up in miracle territory, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> especially considering that she's married to me. It's miraculous <laughs> that she stayed connected. So. Yeah, but if I've, if what I've read is true, you uh, you guys were young sweethearts. You, uh, I think I saw a photograph or a video where you met in grade school. Well, we it was actually before that. I was probably four, and she was probably three. And uh, I didn't know this when I asked her to marry me, which was uh, when I was in college and she was a senior, and. Uh, my mother told me, oh, you met many years ago when you were very small. And she had a picture from this birthday party. And it just so happens that among the 20-some kids around this big table standing and sitting, Jared and I are sitting directly across from each other. And I often say when I show that photo, we, that's me sitting there with a big smile on my face because I see my future. That's her with a frown on her face because she sees hers. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But listen, longevity, it, like you said, it's a miracle. It's a miracle anywhere these days. But yeah, California, for some reason, just... <laughs> All right. Well, we are, we're, uh, th this is a, a sincere pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the Thriller Zone podcast. I appreciate it. Well, I hope I'm coherent. Let's see. <laughs> we'll do our best. I do. I want to tell you front. Uh, first of all, I am going to try my best not to appear as a Supreme geek, although I cannot promise you that's not going to happen. Okay. Well, right. I'll steal myself. <laughs> Now, a uh, quick quick note on the behind you. That, because I love, uh, again, I think it was the same. I think it was a CBS morning special, and I got to see a stalk. I mean, see your uh, office uh, where you have all your books lined up in your desk. And, you know, because I'm a, an author myself and I'm, I was geeking out on this, this background looks like a different one than that. Yes, we, uh, we're building another house. And, uh, we weren't going to sell the one that was in those in the interview you're mentioning until we finished building. But then we had an offer we couldn't refuse. It involved no horse's head. And uh, <laughs> we took it and then we needed an interim house. Uh, so here we are in the interim house. And this is my assistant's office, which uh, it turns out to work pretty well. The books are real behind me. They're not, you know, cardboard. Uh, yeah. We actually don't have enough room for all the books. So we never have to fake them with a fake background. Yeah. Now referring to that same house, Dean, that was a spectacular home. And it's, I want to say, um, Newport, Newport beach, Laguna area, um, up in, uh, just the most beautiful area of that uh, whole town. Are you going to be able to stay in the same neighborhood or you? We moved, uh, to the community right next door, which is Irvine into a little community that's, uh, it's more rustic. Uh, it's, uh, they're all, it's a new community. It's about 15 years old, I guess, or something. But uh, the uh, houses are actually a pretty good uh, rendition of Tuscan. That's the building standards. Although the one we're working on has an Art Deco flair about it. Uh, so it's uh, it's a little more out there. We have deer in the streets. We have coyotes, uh, and uh, that that's kind of interesting. We're ten to fifteen minutes from the other house, going from 
Newport Beach to beer in the streets, which is very, there's few places in the world other than California where these opposites collide everywhere in the book. That is crazy. Uh, we were just, uh, wife and I were just up in uh, Lake Tahoe this weekend and uh, black bears were everywhere and they were almost, they were, we'd spot them every once in a while and it was almost as commonplace as tourists. And I was like, all right, how weird is this to go from <laughs> San Diego to, you know, bears and deers and coyotes? It'll get really weird when you go into the casino and you see a bear playing blackjack. <laughs> I you know it's gotten really weird. And if he's singing Elvis songs, then I'm really going to be perplexed. And he almost surely will. All right. Well, we're going to be talking about this beautiful book, The Big Dark Sky, uh, with Dean Koontz here in just a couple of minutes. But I do want to, for those who may have been living in a cave or under a rock somewhere, I want to talk a, a little bit about you, if you'll bear with me. I do want to say it is wicked awesome. But, you know, I can't imagine anyone not knowing who you are, but I'll say that in a some of these numbers are going to be a little bit off, and I'm sure by the time we get through this podcast, it will have already changed again. But something like no less than 79 New York Times bestsellers, 14 of which were number one. And uh, when you get into 38 languages and approach more than half a million copies, you're in you're in an echelon, Dean, that I, I – well, I've never spoken to anyone in that category before, but what has – that been like this career of yours amazing well i'll correct one error okay it's not half a million copies it's half a billion copies it's 500 million but i'm an idiot thank you so much yeah <laughs> well we're all idiots in this world it's uh, that's what's wrong with it we're first of all did i ever see this coming oh no no uh, when i was beginning and i'd sold a couple of paperbacks and some short stories and my wife said, I know you want to be a writer, not a teacher, uh, so I'll support you for five years. You can't make it in five. I'll never make it. And we sat down and discussed how much I'd have to earn to make this a viable career. And we decided if I could just do $25,000 a year, this was many years ago, it was more money than now, but it wasn't a lot. Then with her job in mind, we could, uh, we could do this. We never saw it coming. And then slowly we did. Uh, long before my publishers saw it coming, I saw it coming in the mail volume that started rising. I saw it coming in where we got reviewed and how much more enthusiastic they were. And uh, it was interesting to me that so many of publishers I had worked with never saw it coming, even as it was happening. And I was able to buy back many of the early books I wrote were acquired them back for no cost. Just they said, here, you can have it. It has no value. And later those books went on to sell millions of copies in paperback. So yeah, it, uh, it took us a while to figure out that this could ever happen. And when it did happen, it's, it's been amazing. Uh, I look back on it. I'm so grateful for it. Uh, and, uh, and, and can't imagine how, it grew to what it grew to, but I'm not going to second guess it. Um, right. And I'm still doing it at my age. You know, I'm 246. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so I'm still, still working at it. I don't intend to quit though I fall dead. 
Now, uh, I was going to bring this up later, but I'll, I'll bring it up now since you brought it. You have one of the most uh, uh, intense work ethics of anyone that I've heard. And it, are you still doing, you were, this story I was reading, you, you clock somewhere around 10 hours a day. And I think I heard six days a week. You, you certainly don't still go at it that hard, do you? Absolutely, I do. Uh, and uh, there's right now I'm at seven days a week because I'm into a book that is really gripping me and uh, started out as being just a book I really wanted to write. And now I'm thinking, maybe this is a trilogy. Uh, somebody who's 246 years old should not be <laughs> thinking about a trilogy. The clock is ticking, but it's now suddenly in my head that might happen. Uh, people say, well, you have no time to do anything else. Yes. I sleep about six hours a day. Uh, and that leaves, uh, you know, eight hours a day for anything else I want to do. It's hard to write, writing where you are always setting a, a higher bar for yourself. But on the other hand, you love it. It's also like play. And very few people get to earn a living doing something they consider to be play. So you have to have some gratitude for that. Sure. And that's what I find so fascinating, Dean, is you have never, and I went back through the whole list and I'm like, you've never run out of ideas. You have never repeated yourself. And I was at uh, uh, an event a couple of weeks ago, a thriller fest up in New York City. And I was talking to a buddy of mine and I said, you know, people always, a lot of interviewers will use that cliche line that I promised to myself I would never use. And I'm not going to use it here, but it's like, oh, where do you get your ideas? <laughs> and I'm thinking, it's one of the most ridiculous questions ever because it, we're, we're, we're writers. We, we create things out of the, out of the air. Of course, it's just news or watching life, but to be able to have this prolific of a career and not repeat yourself and to always keep it fresh is just, that's when you know two things. It's true blue, amazing talent, and it's pure true blue passion. It is. It's it's the passion is the part that I, I often think that you, if you have the passion for it and the work ethic, the talent is, is there's got to be some, but it doesn't have to be overwhelming because persistence and and passion make up for a lot of shortcomings otherwise. I used to say sometimes when I would get smart ass answers to where you get your ideas. And for a while I said, there's this little shop in Parowan, Utah, where you can buy plot ideas that are amazing. But then I sort of gave that up and because uh, nobody believed Parowan. It was it is a town, but it just doesn't seem like a literary town. Uh, and, uh, and this is true that the imagination is like a muscle. The more you use it, the more it delivers to you. And that is what I think it's because I've never relented and I'm always moving on to something else. There are always new ideas. Uh, I've had moments where I thought, especially as I got older, and I thought, hmm, I think I'm beginning to run out. And it's funny because that panic sets in and you're finishing a book and you don't know what you're going to do next. And you finish the book. And there's the new idea, or sometimes here's two or three, and you've got to choose between them. And your subconscious was holding it all in, I think, because you had to focus on one you're finishing. And then as soon as you do, boom, there's the new stuff. But you've always got to be feeding your mind, have interest in the world and all of everything that's going on in it. 
And that's where the ideas come from. Not that you're reading the paper and say, oh, that would make a great novel. It doesn't quite work that way. Right. Just feed the subconscious and something down there starts putting bits together. That's a really great point. To me, it's like a soup. You know, sometimes I was a bachelor a long time before I got married, which was late in life. And I, <laughs> on many of those nights, I would just throw, oh, let's see what I've got. And I'd throw it in the, in the pot and it would just simmer. And eventually, amazingly, it would be uh, delicious. And it's kind of like that. I, I I have to believe it's the same with you. I mean, you, you you have an idea and you go, let me just put it on the back burner for a second or a week or a month. And then all of a sudden you're over here. And to your point of the subconscious, your subconscious will do that work behind the behind the scenes, won't it, Dean? It'll just grab that thing and go, oh, now I got a connection. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something you... You have to consciously manage it once you begin to write. But by the time you've got the idea for what the book is likely to be about, which for me is a premise, not an entire plot. I don't plot ahead of time. It's a premise, an idea, a character or two that I think I'm going to enjoy writing. Uh, one of them will be the lead. One will probably be the, the antagonist. Um, where it'll be two great leads and I'll figure out the antagonist, but that's all I need. Plus, what is the book about other than the story? What does it say about, I don't like to put it this way, it sounds too college writing course, but uh, what about the human condition does this book find interesting? Uh, that's all I need to get going. And then you've put all this together in a way in the subconscious, but then when you start to write, you know, you've got to bring the conscious mind into it and you've got to figure out, okay, where does this go? And that is, uh, that's the scary part and the exhilarating part because it often goes when you don't plot ahead, as I don't, it often goes places you never imagined. And, uh, and that becomes very exciting for me because it means you could fall on your face where you could succeed in a way you didn't anticipate. And both of those are interesting. Okay, now that that blows my mind, although I, I do have a note to mention later about the plotter, pantser, uh, whether you like those terms or not. Some people love to do exhaustive uh, outlines like Jeffrey Deaver. I think we've mm-hmm. shared that same insight. And others like to just sit down and go with it. So are you telling me, Dean, that you literally go, okay, it's a, a big dark sky. It's about this thing that's happening here and there's this person here I really want to talk about and then you just go from there literally for those 400 plus pages absolutely uh, the, uh, it's uh, by the way I'm I'm a I'm I'm not a plotter uh, and I always wear pants so I don't know if the term pantser is uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure that fits me but yeah, the first book I ever did that with was the first book I had that became a hardcover bestseller. It was a novel called Strangers. And it had a large cast of characters. It was, the manuscript was well over a quarter of the million words, uh, 900 and some uh, manuscript pages. And uh, I just began with concept in the first couple of characters and let it evolve. And I had more fun with that than I'd ever had with the novel previously. And as I said, it was the first hardcover bestseller I had. Uh, And after that, I thought, wow, this works. Why go back to the other? One of the problems I always ran into when I plotted, and in those days, 
because I was a solid mid-list writer at that time, I could sell a book based on an outline. So I would do an outline, 10 pages, send it in, they buy the book, they pay me half, I write the book, they get the other half. Uh, and the problem that was driving me insane was I would never fully follow the outline. I'd start, <laughs> then the novel would go somewhere better and I'd deliver it. And though it had gone somewhere better, the editor and publisher would say, this isn't the book we bought. And they, they would get hung up on what it wasn't rather than what it was. And finally, in frustration, that's why I stopped writing outlines or letting it uh, even see more. Than, I don't even tell a publisher what a book's about in advance of delivering the manuscript. They just have confidence that it'll probably work. Right. And, uh, it's, and so far it has. Well, and you have had the track record that allow that would allow that to happen. You th- this would not have happened a dozen years before that. But the thing about strangers, and I had this as a note later. What do you suppose was the magic about that? Part A and Part B is if you had started out with that long of a book, we all know that a publisher would probably go, "Okay, Dean, this is like way too long. You got to cut this thing down." So. That's exactly what happened with Strangers. <laughs> um, they gave me, uh, the editor, The publisher came back. She was also my editor at the time. And she said, uh, I'm going to assign you a literary editor because the quality of your prose deserves that. Now, I knew this person. I, I think she was a very bright publisher, but she only did one kind of thing. And it was those writers who write pretty much the same book again and again. Sometimes I love those writers. Uh, Dick Francis was one of them. Uh, But uh, I knew as soon as she was going to bring in an editor, she was uh, she was thinking, "Okay, I I can't handle him. Uh, He won't listen to what I'm telling him. So somebody else has to edit him." And she gave him the task of getting this 900. I think it was 940 page manuscript down to no more than 600 pages. Uh, and I couldn't see how to uh, how to do anything to cut it. And he was a wonderful editor. He was a very sweet man. Uh, he had come from Viking. She had hired him from Viking to come and do certain books. And uh, he kept the manuscript for six weeks. He told me he was going to show me how to cut 300 pages minimum. So he kept it for six weeks, and when he sent it to me, he came with the note and said, Dear Dean, you'll see what I've redlined uh, for cutting. I have redlined uh, 10 pages worth of cuts. Now you just apply my technique and find the other 290. (laughs) (laughs) And he was joking, uh, but you never know. And so I called him and, and said, this is a joke, right? You can't find any more to cut. And he said, no. He said, uh, you know, we're very disappointed. And he was serious about this, which itself is very funny. He says, this book has so many characters with so many deep stories to each of them uh, that what we were hoping is we could just cut out three of these characters and that would bring the book down to 300 pages. But we've realized that if you cut any one of these characters, the entire novel falls apart. And I said, well, in the future, I will always write three characters that we can rip out with no effect on them. (laughs) 
But it struck me as so strange that they would think that was even possible. But yeah. They yeah. Did. Yeah. Like Jenga, like you could pull out this and, and this yeah. piece over here and it wouldn't affect yeah. the uh, whole thing. The whole power would still stand. Yeah. Yeah. That is crazy. Um, it's on your website and it's a couple of other places that, uh, you won Atlantic Monthly's uh, fiction competition, uh, back as a senior in college and that you've never stopped writing since, which in and of itself is pretty amazing. But my question is, did you, did you say to yourself, uh, when you won that award? Yep. You know what? This right here is exactly what I'm going to do with my life. I mean, was it that, uh, instill that much of resounding confidence in you at that moment? I worked on the campus literary magazine uh, or so it was called. And uh, I, uh, this story had appeared in it um, and it had been uh, written for another professor in a short story class. Uh, I didn't submit it. The woman who uh, was uh, in charge of the literary magazine uh, submitted it without my knowledge. So when it won, this was a small college in Pennsylvania uh, in the state college system. And professors have been submitting stuff to this competition for decades and nobody had ever won anything. So all that mattered to me for a while was that when I got this award, which I hadn't even known it was submitted for, I suddenly went from the slacker of the year in college to a guy who couldn't do wrong in any of his English classes. I got, I got A's whether I worked or not. And I thought, this is perfect. Because yeah. uh, I was basically a slacker in the education system. <laughs> so being able to get A's simply for some story you've done that was fun to do struck me. I think it took me a little while to think, hmm. The first thing I thought was, wow, you can do this and, and, uh, and people be fooled into thinking it has value. And then there was no money associated with this award. It was a certificate and they published a little booklet with stories in it. And then there was a magazine, I think it was called Readers and Writers. And uh, I submitted it to Readers and Writers on my own and they bought it. And uh, I was paid $50. Doesn't sound much, but when you're a senior in college oh, sure. and paperbacks in those days, anywhere from 45 to 60 cents, I could buy a slew of paperbacks with $50. So it was a big deal for me. Yeah. And it was then I started to think, huh, I, I was so slow about some things. I hadn't realized you could actually make a living as a writer. I thought it's something somebody did while they taught in college or, or on some stipend that somebody was paying them. And when I realized, no, there's people who do this for a living, I think then sort of retroactively to the award, it was, okay, maybe I'd like to do this. And that's when I started applying myself. Wow. That's just, I love that. You know, I, and I mentioned this a second ago, we were talking about uh, your work ethic and the amount of hours that you write. And I was going to I'd love to know in your spare time, if you have any, you have very little spare time. Is there someone that you read that you really enjoy that you, that's maybe completely different or even nonfiction from what you ordinarily are? A lot of books I've been writing require a lot of research. So a lot of pleasure reading is in nonfiction uh, because it's also work research. Right. Uh, but, uh, and lately I've been going back to read people that I loved 
when I was in my 20s and 30s, uh, which is 210 years ago or so. <laughs> and, uh, and I wanted to see whether those people who really uh, inspired me, still, I still felt that way about them. And it's a little, you know, I feel a little jeopardy about doing this. Uh, because uh, some writers like John D. McDonald had enormous influence on me. Uh, John D. McDonald taught me that you could stop the action of a novel for several pages and do character backgrounds so interesting that the reader was compelled through it just as he was in an action scene. And uh, that, I, I, when I first discovered John D. McDonald, I read 34, 33 novels in 30 days, I think it was. Uh, I did nothing else but read John D. McDonald uh, in sleep. And uh, so he had a profound effect on me. And I went back to him and Ray Bradbury and a number of writers who had had a lot of effect on me. And I've been reading them. And I have found two or one, they still resonate with me. And that's very heartening. Um, there's a few others I might be a little slower to go back and read. But uh, that, that's sort of what I've been reading lately. And so I haven't gone on to a lot of new stuff, though I keep piling up on the nightstand and I will get to it. <laughs> I bet it's quite a stack. And I was going to ask, and you're too much of a gentleman to throw anybody under the bus. I, I, I have to know that about you. But have you read, have you run across someone that you go, oh, I used to read them. And then you go back and you read it and they're still writing and you go, wow, you you you're phoning it in or you're, you know, you're repeating yourself or anything like that. Yeah, there have been a couple of those. Yeah. Uh, I again, I won't mention names, right. even though one of them has passed away. There was a writer, I won't use his name, that I I adored. Uh, I was buying his hardcovers when I couldn't afford hardcovers, and when hardcovers were four ninety five, five ninety five, uh, and uh, he he was just unique, and he didn't hit big time until he was in his fifties. And it must have been very frustrating. He wrote films as well, but he wrote a lot of excellent novels in a couple of different genres. And suddenly, all the literati found him. Uh, and he began to get praise through the roof. And he was everybody's darling. And I noticed that the first thing I, well, I was so happy for him. It was like, great. Finally, people are noticing. Uh, and then after a while, I began to notice they weren't praising the complete panoply of qualities in his novels. They were focused on like two of five great things he did. And I'm just picking those numbers out of sure. here. Uh, and then I noticed as the years went by, his work began to change. And what he was doing was focusing on those things that got all the praise and letting those other qualities sort of fade into the background. And ultimately, I found the later work unreadable. And that, to me, was quite a lesson. I thought, you know, you always have to um, stay true to what you think you're doing and don't let anyone else tell you what you're doing. Yeah. Or And certainly don't let praise overwhelm you because uh, it's. I tell young writers who get upset when they get a really nasty review and they're in the doldrums and they, yeah. they thinking about you know, strychnine and uh, that sort of thing. And I just say, yeah, no, it, it, you can't pay attention to either praise or damnation uh, because either one is likely to be wrong-headed. Uh, you have to thank the people who find 
equality in it and just say to the others, ah, yeah, everyone's deserves their opinion, even idiots like you. <laughs> you know, also, Dean, it also makes me think about people who uh, have this idea about writing to market. Oh, hey, listen, this is really cool right now. So I'm going to write for that. Well, what happens when you spend six, nine, 12, 15 months writing to that? And all of a sudden, like everyone's attention span, the tide shifts and you're left out on the other side. That's the other mistake. I, I've, I've always said, don't scope the market. Don't go out there and look around for what everybody wants and then write it. What is it that makes you want to be a writer? What is it as a reader that excites you? That's what you want to be writing. And even if the market for it is minuscule, um, by the, at some point it'll change. And if you're doing the work at the highest level you possibly can, you might be one of those writers who changes the market, and then it's your market. That's the only one that's lasting. Uh, going out writing zombie novels worked for some people for a while because there were hundreds of zombie novels. But most of those writers you can't find anymore, and uh, and there's a peril in writing to what the market thinks it wants. Yeah. And here's another one of those questions. And if it is a cliche, I want you to reach through the camera and just slap me in the face, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm curious. You're one of those few authors that I've followed that had a bevy of pen names. And I wanted to ask, what? why did you choose that? And, and what may be the pros and cons of that? So again, if it is one of those, where do you get your ideas? Feel free to just go, bam. No, uh We'll have to have coffee and then I'll get you. But <laughs> unless you're bigger than me, then no, it's your say. But uh, yeah, it, that became that would happen only because I had agents early on that were they followed that idea that publishers sold to them. If a writer wrote this and there's any audience at all for it, then he has to keep writing that. The very much the same kind of thing over and over. Well, even from the earliest days, uh, once I left the science fiction field, I wasn't doing that. And it led to a lot of frustration with agents. Uh, my first one was a crook. My second one was a great guy and an honest man. But I kept giving him outlines for novels. Can you sell this? And he kept bouncing them back to me. He would sell some things, but he would say, you're trying to break out to the large audience. You'll never do that. You're going to be for all your life, a very successful mid-list writer, but your vocabulary is too big. Your ideas are too complex, blah, 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 for you to be a bestseller. Uh, and I finally had to say, I love you as a human being, but I'm 20 some years old. I can't say this is the rest of my life. Um, so it's, I, and then when I was writing each different thing, the idea was, uh, well, you can't publishers and agents alike would say, okay, you can't publish this under your name because it isn't what people expect from you. And I bought into that for a while. I would create a pen name for that kind of book. Sometimes it turned out to be one book. Other times, two or three, or in the case of the Nichols, I think it was five. Finally, as my novels started to sell under my own name, my wife and I managed to buy back or otherwise reacquire almost all those novels. And, uh, and as it turned out, when I republished many of them under my name, they were just as popular uh, with the readers. Uh, 
uh, there was an editor who gave me back five novels when I offered to pay to get them back, which I had done in other cases, who said, no, no, you could just have these. They, they aren't worth anything anyway. Uh, he was sort of a smart human being and uh, took them back. And the very first one, two years later that I issued, went to number one on the New York Times paperback list. <laughs> and in the first year, sold two million paperbacks. So all of that IP, intellectual property, had value. Uh, but it was being spread out under all these pen names yeah. simply because nobody could conceive that one audience would like all these different approaches. And that is such an excellent point. And I've, I've, I've always thought back to the same line of thinking, oh, where do you get your ideas? But that's it's what a writer does. So, you know, there's this thinking that, oh, well, you can't write suspense and thriller and uh, sci-fi. I mean, you know, your your readers are going to get confused. I'm like, said who? Now, I understand if you're writing a systematic series, it's John Smith and he's and you got 12 books and those readers only want to read Dean Koontz's John Smith. OK, I get that. However, your imagination is so broad and so monumental that you're it would be ridiculous to try to put you into a box. I mean, that's to me, that's just bad thinking. Well, it's, it's bad thinking I've dealt with for a long time. It's, uh, I, uh, I remember when I delivered uh, the first Odd Thomas, uh, my publisher at that time hated it so much, he wouldn't talk to me about it uh, and uh, conveyed through my editor that this was a disaster going to ruin the career. And I'd heard this before, so I didn't take it to heart too much. Uh, and then when booksellers started responding to the book and ordering it in greater volume and the early reviews came out, and I think we had 120 or 30 reviews of that, only two were bad. When all that started happening, uh, it was he was so upset with me on that book. And I had one more book to deliver. And he said, I, all I want from you is a really scary novel. I don't want this a character like I Thomas. I don't want this humor. I don't. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have to change publishers. I owe them one more novel. So I wrote a very scary novel just to conclude the contract. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Thomas was published and very successfully and went through a, probably 18 printings or something. And uh, uh, he, and then he, he came to me and said, listen, if we do a new contract, I'll never again tell you what to write. Uh, and I thought, okay, that's an admission of something. But there, always, there were other moments thereafter where I wasn't told what to write, but I was, it was conveyed to me when something I had delivered was a little bit of a disappointment. And uh, you just have to roll with that. Uh, I would have never had the career I had if I would stayed writing the same thing. And, uh, Good. Wow. Good for you. Uh, I watched this video over the weekend. For some reason, I went down a rat. I was reading about you, and I was, and I just went down this rabbit hole, and I ran across Donald Westlake, who I've always admired. And then he was talking about his character, Richard Stark, and he. And then he said that that Richard Stark ended up selling more books than 
Donald West, like, and he said, I was so angry at Richard Starkus. He was selling more books than me when I realized, oh, I created that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a number of different pseudonyms. And yeah. uh, I think he was guided by that same advice uh, that, that, that the uh, Richard Stark novels uh, uh, were with Parker as the character were just too hard boiled uh, to satisfy uh, Westlake readers who largely always expected an element of humor uh, in the novel. And uh, in the end, uh, ultimately, everybody knew that Richard Stark was Donald Westlake, uh, and nobody cared that they read them both. Uh, although I'm not surprised that more people read uh, the Stark books than read Westlake's own. Yeah. But he was, he, he was a singular talent and a fascinating writer. Yeah, just few like him. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll dig into The Big Dark Sky, a book Kirkus Reviews calls a nonstop actioner with cosmic overtones. Stay with us. Your host, David Temple here. Hey, before we get back to the show, I thought I would throw in this one quick note. I have had authors approach me who want to actually advertise on the show, and I'm like, that's cool. I love that idea. I mean, think about it. We feature the best thriller writers in the world. You're one of the new up-and-coming thriller writers in the world to be. And you have a book coming out. Our rates are super reasonable. <laughs> We're easy to work with, as you know. And we all want to work together to make success for all of us. Just reach out to us here at The Thriller Zone at thethrillerzone at gmail.com. Let's talk rates. Let's talk details. Let's do something together in the new year. I think you'll like it. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Dean Coates, author of The Big Dark Sky, and you're listening to The Thriller Zone with David Temple. Let's get to The Big Dark Sky, which everyone who watches and listens to this show knows how much I love covers, and I love this cover. It's one of those, just it just grabs you at the beginning, and it doesn't let go. And Dean, I don't always do this. I wonder, and I'm trying to be really respectful and get in and out, because I know you're a busy man, but uh, I, can I read just one tiny little excerpt for for my listeners? Sure. And you this, have a great voice, so well, I'm sure you will. Well. It's just, I, I go through and I, I highlight things that I really, really like, and then I'll go back and reread them and I'll just chew on them like a sandwich. And this is one of those. After a week, when the dreams failed to relent, animals began to populate them. Great flocks of rock doves winging through the conifers in the last orange light of day. A herd of elk encircling her as she proceeded with them through a misty dusk. Frequently, a pack of lantern-eyed coyotes swarmed around her under a polished pearl moon, and though the mood was ominous, the threat she sensed did not come from those creatures, but from something unknown in the starlight currents of the deep, cool night. <laughs> That's one of those, I mean, that is so freaking beautiful and scary. <laughs> And intriguing. And that's what this book does. It, it, it pulls you in and it puts its arm around you. Then it scares the out of you. And then it, I, I loved it. Thank you so much for letting me read this. 
Uh, it's, uh, you know, years ago, I fell in love with the English language. And part of what I love about writing is don't slow the story down necessarily, uh, but give things a chance to breathe. Give us some description that sucks us in. One of the most common things I get in reader mail is that they'll say, when I'm reading your books, it's like I'm watching a movie. I yeah. see everything in my head. And that only comes out of, uh, uh, you know, I love Ernest Hemingway, but Hemingway gave up all those writer's tools in order to pare it down to the essence of what the, basically the themes are. And I say, that's fine. That's well good. I love that kind of writing. But you're also you're also surrendering most of the things in your toolbox. And there's no reason you should. That isn't the only way to write. Uh, so it's what keeps me going, those different figures of speech, those different descriptions. And the longer you write, more books you have, the harder it is to come up with unique ways to say things. But it's also part of the challenge that makes the writing fun to do. Well, and you mentioned this earlier in the conversation. You know, you can have the story moving forward at a pretty good clip. And if you stop and you give a little backstory as to a character or take a moment to describe the evening like this, I personally could have gone down that little rabbit hole for quite some time just because it was so eloquent. And I got to admit, and I've got a pretty good education and me talk pretty sometimes. But I got to tell you, I had to pull out a dictionary on once or twice. Uh, okay, five times. But um, seven. Okay, I'm, I'm all right, only nine, but I'm, that's all I'm going to admit. Right. You'll but, tell me the truth and half coffee, but go ahead. Yeah. But it's just one of those books, and and I'll admit that you know I, I I have not read your entire library. I've read a couple through the years, and frankly, I think the last one I read, I'm going to be honest with you, was 2012, and I want to say uh, I remember it was um, the bad the bad place. I think it was, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. 2010, 12, 13, anywhere in there, and and so. Life got busy on me, Dean, sorry. And I came back around and this came into my uh, view, my spectrum. And I thought, wow, okay. And it's, you know, you can't, I'm not going to use, I'm, yeah, I'm going to use a cliche. You can't put it down. You can put it down, but I would advise you not to. But anyway, holy cow. And just when you think it's morphing into one thing, it kind of leads you down the other path. And it actually, Dean, this is my favorite thing. And I'm not going to belabor this point, but you caused me to think about something that I literally, as God is my witness, never thought of, never considered before. And it was an element of your sci-fi. And again, I'm not, I don't want to say it because I don't want to give anything away, but it, it, and I'll tell you off camera. I had, I told my wife, I'm like, honey, listen to this. Have you ever had this idea? Dean, Dean caused my brain to do this. And I told her and she looked at me, she goes, I've never had that thought in my life. I'm like, yeah, I'm 63. That has never occurred to me. That's all I'm going to say. Oh. See, that's what my extra 150 years brings me is those little insights. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, and I'm always, uh, I look for different ways to tell stories. I have a, the next book is one called The House at the End of the World. And uh, I found a kind of new way to structure a novel that is really compelling that plunges you through it and yet allows just what you were quoting there uh, to be unobtrusive. And uh, and now I've delivered a second book writing in that 
thing called After Death. I got a new novel where it came up with something that uh, it's all about. There's so many different ways to tell stories. And that's why I don't want to get locked into them. And I'm always looking for a way that that grabs you and uh, propels you. Uh, and yet uh, it isn't just a thriller. Uh, I, I would like to think there's more going on in the book than that. And in fact, I know there is because I think about it pretty deeply. Uh, so thank you for reading that. It sounded nice to me. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for that. You know, it, it's interesting because you you do cause that shift in thought. And I, I don't want to belabor it and I don't want to sound cheesy, but for, and I, I love thrillers. I love page ripping thrillers. I mean, because I read so much and I've got so many plates in the air when I want to just escape that's what I go for. But when you can literally cause me to step outside myself and bend my imagination in a, in a direction that it had not originally bent, that you've accomplished something. But and, and you just made me think of something. I found trace elements of faith and references to God and heaven in here, which was cool. And I grew up in a, I'm a PK, I grew up a preacher's kid, which uh, tells you some of my dementia, but um, kidding. There was a there was an intriguing addition to this you know suspense sci-fi that I went wow there's a little there's spirituality in there which I was not expecting where did that come from It's something that's been eating into my novels for a long time uh, It's uh, I, I think one of the ones that became uh, first became really obvious to people was a book called From the Corner of His Eye. And I read a lot of science. Uh, it's almost a hobby and has been all my life. And I'm particularly fascinated with quantum mechanics um, and uh, modern physics. And one day it occurred to me that quantum mechanics, which presents to us a world so intricately connected in all its elements uh, that, well, one thing that that most people have heard about is the butterfly effect. Oh, yeah. Uh, flock of butterflies flying in Tokyo affects the weather in Chicago. Or if you do two experiments of the same nature and you do one in LA and one in New York and the labs know they're being done together, events in one lab can affect the experiments in another. Uh, when you start getting into quantum mechanics, you see a world so strange and so deeply layered that you have to say, okay, uh, there, there, is, there is in the world a spiritual layer and science is showing it to us. And I've been exploring that for a long time. And uh, I know many scientists and I get mail from many and, uh, and they love that element of it. They will tell you sometimes, I dare not say this among some colleagues, but there's no question to me. And these are very, very high position uh, physicists and astrophysicists and biochemists. And they'll say, it's, it's obvious to me, we're living in a created environment. It is not happenstance. Now that's not saying that any world religion is the correct one or has gotten it all right. Uh, it's just saying, this is a great mystery. And I began to let that mystery be there in the background of books with from the corner of design. And it's been something that keeps uh, insisting itself. And the older I get, I've had some strange experiences in life. That I, and I've always been 
interested in synchronicity, which oh. the big dark sky uh, involves. Uh, and synchronicity, there's some examples late in the book that uh, uh, Ganesh Patel, one of the characters, quotes to some of his other characters in the book. And their real world synchronicity is so amazing that you think, okay, that's not coincidence. There's something else going on under the surface of things. And uh, and I've, I love exploring that book. I had the idea for a book about synchronicity 40 years ago, but I couldn't think how it would enter into the story. And it couldn't be so that the reader would say, well, all of this is just coincidence. No, that wouldn't be the point of the story. It would, the point would be saying, look around you at your life and how many things could have happened so differently and how many things had to come together in a certain way to make this happen. You start to see life in a different way. And uh, that's why I quote Jung in this, who was the creator of the idea of synchronicity. Uh, and uh, anyway, that's been an element books that I don't push at people, but it's more just saying, look at the world in its depth of its wonder. And that makes everything that happens uh, so much more interesting than it otherwise would be. Yeah. I could talk about quantum mechanics and synchronicity and uh, so many of those elements for hours. I am fascinated by it. I, I can't get enough of it. When we were at Tahoe this weekend, and you're at you know seven, eight thousand feet, and the air is pristine, and and God's beauty is all around you. However you want to call it, God, you can't look at that and go, okay, yeah, this this just happened out of nowhere. Hey, and even and this is a rabbit hole that I've traveled though before, and you've certainly heard it, I'm sure. Yeah, but there's the Big Bang. Okay, well, who created the spark that created the bang? is what I always want to say. And I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about this higher manifestation of power that create has created what we see. But, you know, yet I digress. Well, one thing to, that is, is interesting to consider is, uh, and this is a point of science, that if uh, we're living in an anthropic universe, a universe that allows life to exist, the chances that require all of Planck's minimums and all of these other conditions of physics to be exactly what they are. Uh, if they vary by a tenth, a thousandth of a percent, the universe wouldn't support life. When, and some people have come up with number to represent the likelihood of this, and it's 10 to the power of 120. If you were to write that out in normal notation, like one, zero, 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 you would need thousands of years to write it out. And then when you've written it on paper, it would fill about a third of the known universe. Um, that's how unlikely it is that life could be uh, existent in the universe. Uh, and so that, that humbles you if you're willing to be humbled. And uh, it is kind of a fascinating fact. Well, I'm going to have to have you back on the show at another time to where we can drill down on those. Your voice will be rested. You'll be in your new house and we'll have a little bit of time. I, I might even just drive up to your neighborhood and sit down and do it in person because I would do that in a heartbeat. Because Where are you? I'm in uh, San Diego, Encinitas oh. proper. Yeah. Oh, 
then we could get letter, together for lunch and something. I would love that because I have a feeling you and I could go down that rabbit hole because, and I'm going to tell you when we wrap here in a few minutes, that idea, just a little germ of an idea. And because I'm curious to see if that was your intention or if I'm just hallucinating and or insane. So that's going to be one of those things. All right. Um, before, as we begin to wrap up, before we get to rapid fire questions, which is a fun little quick, very quick uh, uh, con, uh, game, I want to ask, I always ask my visiting authors who offer their best piece of advice. And along that line, I found an article that lists your top seven tips for penning a masterpiece. One of my favorite things I've read yet, and it's it, there's a few things that you covered in it that uh, that is in this article, and I'm not actually going to go through it right now. I'm going to offer it in the notes on my show so that we can keep moving along. But um, so I'm not going to do that. Now, but we want to share if you were to give a best piece of advice to aspiring writers, and I know you, you probably got 50. What would that best, you could be, it could be two or three. What would that advice be? Uh, well, first of all, I hope that article wasn't, I, I don't recognize that article. So if it was going back too many years, I might not agree with all the seven points, but uh, if it's something more recent, uh, probably is. Uh, I would say it comes back to that thing, right? What you're passionate about. And, and, and don't do a lot of thinking about um, uh, what do they want. Then another thing I would also say is if your passion is to write, I don't know, let's say, uh, Westerns or romances or thrillers or science fiction novels, whatever your passion is. Don't read just that. As a reader, broaden out and read all kinds of things because the broadening of your reading is liable to change what you're most passionate about. But it's also, if it doesn't, and you still say this is what I'm most passionate about, all those other genres that you're reading now, and I consider literary fiction another genre. Once you've done all that expansive reading, what you're going to find is you've run into techniques and all kinds of interesting uh, uh, sort of tricks that writers have that you're not always going to find in that genre you're passionate about, that once you've seen them, once you've learned them, you can bring and start to create something new within that genre. That's where you're going to succeed. So those are probably the two strongest pieces of advice I get. And basically just be persistent. You're going to have naysayers your entire career. And uh, you just can't listen. The world is full of naysayers. You, you have to listen to good advice. You have to listen when an editor says, gee, I think you need another page to on this character because didn't quite get the, what it was trying to achieve here. And you look at it and you can say, that's right, I'll give you that extra page or two. Uh, because if you do take a few things the editor says that have come across, sometimes you say no, sometimes you say yes. If you've taken various things and you've inserted them in the book, when it's published, it doesn't say by being comes with excellent suggestions by. <laughs> so you get all the credit, so why not do it? But I have known writers who get adamant about saying no to everything. And I think that's a mistake. So yeah. that's probably my greatest amount of wisdom. 
Superb, superb. And it makes me think there's a, uh, who's the guy who wrote um, Steal Like an Artist? Um, the point being this, everyone thinks that, oh, well, you can't write that because it's not completely original and or it's been done forever. However, you can read someone like you just said, there's a device I read by a gentleman named Chris Hottie that uh, recently, and I told him straight up, I'm like, dude, that thing that you do right here, I'm going to steal that. I'm just going to tell you straight up, I'm going to steal it. I'm not going to I'm not going to plagiarize your work, which would be copying it, but I'm going to steal the idea, the device. And he goes, hey, wait a minute. I'm like, but isn't that what we do? And he goes, yeah, you're right. So that's a great, great point. We stand on the shoulders of generations of other writers. So it's almost impossible to create something entirely new. And it comes back again. I've said this and I think it's true. What you really have to sell is not so much the story not so much the characters, not so much all of that, uh, those elements of the story. It's your voice. It's the thing about you that is different and that uh, the way you see the world. And every one of us is unique. So if you give your own personal passion the story, it's not going to sound like anybody else. Yeah. So good. So good. You know, and it's guys like me who are really just kind of getting started at a later age that look up to guys like you and go, well, I want to learn from the master. So that's why they ask the questions like, where do you get your thoughts? (laughs) And, (laughs) and, you know, what is your technique? And, and what is your, I was laughing at with my wife this weekend and and she said, what are some of the questions you're going to ask Dean? I said, well, I'm not going to ask about where you get your thoughts and I'm not going to ask him what his routine is. I'm like, I don't know what it is about us writers that want to go, when do you start writing? And when, how long do you go? But maybe it's that we think, Dean, is it that we think that your magic will rub off on us? Or if we copy your method, that we'll, we'll be able to create the same magic? What is that? <laughs> I, I was, at one point, I think, probably always interested in that kind of thing. Not so much about, I get asked uh, a lot, uh, what is the office like you work in? And I think, uh, I, in fact, I just was answering that question. And my publisher sends me social media posts. They need to get, I write them because I'm not like other people writing stuff for me. And, uh, and, and then they also send me your questions. And one of them is, what, what is the office like you, you're working? What does it look like? And so forth. And I don't know why that fascinates. But, and so when I answered that, I said, the previous house, I worked in an office with a spectacular ocean view. Uh, and the, I had the window shades down all day long. I never saw that ocean view for 20 years because if I had the shades up, I'd sit and stare at it. Uh, and uh, now I'm in a, not with an ocean view. I'm in a very large room for my office. It's yeah. full of Art Deco furniture and uh, Art Deco uh, sculpture and ancient Chinese uh, ceramics, uh, actually dogs, uh, fired clay dogs. And, uh, but what does it matter? Uh, yeah. Because the same thing applies. I have windows all around this office of a guy in gardens and the blinds are always down. <laughs> so in the end, it's not about the furniture. Uh, it's, it's what goes on in here. Right. And, and before we do rapid fire questions, I do have to ask you this. Are you still using, and, and I'm going back to that CBS special. Are you still using the computer, that same one? No. Okay. Uh, 
I upgraded quite somewhat after that because that was an embarrassing moment. The crew from CBS was at the house for three days to do that piece. And they never went in my office until the third day. We were elsewhere doing it. Anthony Mason was the interviewer. He's a very nice man, very good interviewer. And we walked into my office for the first time with the camera running. And he saw the computer and he said, what the hell is that? <laughs> and I told him, you, you're just lucky. It, it isn't the gas-powered uh, typewriter. <laughs> and... Uh, because I just got locked into the idea that I didn't want to learn new software by changing computer because that would slow me down. I totally but then agree. I changed and it was okay. I had a little bit of software. I'm going to move very quickly here. Last three things and then we're on our way. Uh, rapid fire questions. You're a prolific writer. You've been a school teacher, but if you could do it all over again, what would you do or be? I wouldn't change anything. Uh, it's been an amazing life, uh, and it's had its ups and downs. It's it's uh, successes and failures, tragedies, and all of that. But that's every life is that way, and there's been a lot of successes here to make up for the other. So I'm just grateful I would uh, go through it all again. That's awesome. I can't think of a better answer. All right. My, no, question number two, my wife, Tammy, and I have invited you and Gerda to join us for dinner. And all that we ask is you bring two extra guests to round out our party for a very delightful evening of conversation. And that's not to say you wouldn't be riveting in and of yourself, but we're just, it's part of the contest, the game here. So you're going to bring two people. Who would those two people be living or dead and why? Well, first of all, I would have to bring our dog. Uh, she, she's a golden retriever and she has, uh, she's a wonderful dog, but she is uber affectionate and uh, she doesn't like to be left at home alone while we go to dinner. So we only go out to dinner at restaurants where we can take her with us. Uh, so you would be obliged to have a dog. Then I would probably bring uh, uh, Flannery O'Connor because she wrote some of the best short stories I've ever read and the scariest short story I think ever written, which is A Good Man is Hard to Find. At the end of that story, I've read it 20 times and it chills me to the bone every time. Uh, so who else in addition to that? Uh, uh, let's see, probably the comedian Stephen Wright. I don't know if you know <gasps> Stephen Wright. I love him, uh, yeah. I, I have never... He is the most amazing comic mind because his jokes are unlike anybody else's. And the moment you hear it, you think how obvious the thought was and how hilarious it is. So it would be interesting to bring those people together with you and your wife and my dog. My dog would throw into the conversation some comments too, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I would love that. And my uh, my Carolina dog, Dexter, would get along fine. Uh, Two great guests. That that would be an exceptional evening. All right. And number three, final question. This resembles something we said earlier, but it's slightly different. You've been asked to return to Shippensburg State College to speak to your alma mater's graduating class. Slightly different again. Writing advice. What's the best piece of life advice? Is there a different piece of life advice that you'd give those young minds before they went out to face the world? I, uh, you may know this, that may be why you asked, but um, many years ago, uh, oh, 25, 30 years ago, maybe more, I was invited to 
go back to my alma mater and receive an honorary doctorate degree. And it so happened my wife and I were going back to Pennsylvania for other reasons around that same time. So I accepted. And uh, I, I, I speak extemporaneously. I don't write notes and stuff. And although, and we drove across country and my wife kept saying all the way, are you working on that speech? Because she was afraid she was going to be mortified when I got there. And I said, no, it'll go fine. It'll be fine. And we got there. And then the strangest thing happened. I had in my head the idea. It was probably a half hour. And before we went on the stage, she said, no, it's a 10-minute speech. And I thought, well, that's quite a short uh, speech for a graduation. And uh, it was completely extemporaneous. But there was one bit of advice I gave them that I think is one of the best pieces of advice I've ever given. I told this class, I think it was a couple of thousand kids in this uh, place, and I, I warned them uh, that the most important thing in life is never pick a fight with a man who has the words born to die tattooed on his forehead. And uh, that, I, that I still think is probably the best piece of advice I can get. Uh, and one of the things that was great about that was I came home and a professor of mine from the college sent me a picture of taken as I made that remark. And there, all these kids in their caps and gowns had their heads back like this and they're laughing. And I thought that's not the kind of thing they were expecting today. And neither was the rest of the speech. So that's perfect. <laughs> I also told them that every graduating uh, commencement speaker will tell the audience, the world needs you, wants you, uh, and they're eager for you to be there. I'm telling you that they don't want you. They're not eager and they're going to have to fight like hell to make anything of your life. And uh, that was my other bit of advice. Reality sometimes hurts, right? (laughs) Well, folks, to learn more, visit DeanKuntz.com and follow him on Twitter at DeanKuntz and like I do at Instagram at DeanKuntzOfficial. Dean, this has been beyond delightful. I thank you so much for your time. Well, you've been great. So we'll have to do this and have to get lunch. And uh, um, do you have my email? If not, once we conclude this, I'll give it to you. I will do that. And uh, this has just been superlatively delightful. And as we say goodbye, I'm going to jump off and tell you what that idea was. So uh, give me. thank you again for your time. Okay. Thank you. It was a great interview. Oh, yeah. Dean Koontz on the Thriller Zone. Did you enjoy that as much as I did? Pinch me, pinch me, yeah. This was a highlight of the year. And what a way to kick off, not literally kick off, but part of season three of the Thriller Zone. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of the show where you could win a copy of The Big Dark Sky. I have two hard copies of The Big Dark Sky behind me on the shelf, and I want to award them to a lucky listener. So here's all you have to do. Go to thethrillerzone.com or drop us an email at thethrillerzone at gmail. Now, the, the reason I give you two different opportunities is you can go to the website and see what we're all about in case you have never been to our website. I mean, you're listening to us on some podcast channel, either Apple or Spotify or Stitcher or iHeartRadio or Google or Amazon, right? But you can also get all of that same beauty right there on thethrillerzone.com. 
So come see us, meet us, youtube.com slash the thriller zone. Of course, that's where our videos live. Soon videos coming to Apple Podcasts. Check that out. So here's what you do. Let's do Let's make it easy. Go to the thriller zone at gmail.com. In the subject line, say, I want Dean Koontz's book. Then in the body of the email, tell me where you're listening. Chicago, it could be Los Angeles, it could be Boise, it could be Australia. Just tell me where you are listening to The Thriller Zone. Here's why I would like that book. Easy, write it in, I'll add all the names, I'll put them on a little piece of paper, I'll stick them in a fishbowl, pull out a name, boom, easy peasy. Now, if you were to ask my wife, What's David's favorite movie? It's either going to be anything James Bond or anything Jason Bourne. Pretty much. Now, yeah, I do Godfather among my favorites. Heat. I'm not going to go down that road because there are too many to list. But Jason Bourne. All right. So next week, Brian Freeman. He has written a book called The Bourne Sacrifice. Part of the Robert Ludlum series, right? Brian Freeman... Jason Bourne, Bourne Sacrifice, I can tell you right now, easily, on my top 10 books of the summer. I kid you not. He's on the show next week. Dean Koontz and now Brian Freeman. It makes you say, who's going to be next? Folks, I got to get on out of here. Thank you again. I'm your host, David Temple. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for subscribing to our YouTube channel. Thank you for those five-star reviews that you've been writing for us. You can do it on our website or you can see it, do it on any one of your podcast channels. Thank you so much. It's, It's people like you that make my job so easy and so much fun. Thank you to my sponsors who have believed in the show from the beginning. You know who you are. Thank you so much. So until next time, which is going to be what? The Bourne Sacrifice. Thanks again to Dean Koontz. Made my whole week. I'll see you next time for another edition of The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.